And we're back now talking with Demi Heath, the director of Photoval, Wellington's first photography festival in over 10 years, presented again as part of the Fringe Festival. Demi, welcome. Hello, thank you for having me. Very welcome. Uh, so tell us about Photoval. It's, it's billed as the photography festival for positive change, but can you expand on that? Yeah, of course. So um, this is the first time that Wellington has had a photography festival in over 10 years. So very excited to bring some photography back into the city to start with. Mm -hmm. um, there's actually no other photography festival out there at the moment that I'm aware of that directly links the images of what the photographers are talking about to charities and organisations that can actually help with that situation. So our aim as part of the festival is to directly link those two so that when people come in and view the works, they've got a very easy way of um, actually positively engaging in the situations going on. Come for the art and stay for the betterment of society, exactly, so to that's speak. A great, that's a great you can use that if you want. <laughs> it's fine. You. Yeah. Um, can you tell me the dates? Actually, I, I don't have them written down just offhand. Yep. So we're running from February 18th, which is c this coming Saturday, um, until March 4th, which is two Saturdays afterwards. Wonderful. 31 artists, seven venues, and and 10 charities. And 10 charities. Wonderful. It's a huge amount. Um, so right off, I know that you had a little bit of trouble following the Kaikoura earthquake in terms of uh, delays, cancellations, trouble with venues. Um, anything that you couldn't get sorted out? or? Uh, well, we've been very lucky in that uh, we've had a couple of venues come through for us last minute to ah. really help us out, which has been incredible. Um, I'm from the UK, as you might be able to hear, so the earthquake in general was quite shocking. Um, so we were originally planning to be on Lower Tory Street for part of the um, for part of the festival. We were going to have two shows down there, but it's actually going to be closed until April now. So we had to find another venue very last minute. My production team were incredible in that way. So we've relocated now to the St James Theatre. So we've got three shows in there, which is amazing, and also the print printer partner that we were working with, Inc. Digital, had to move out of their premises for a very long time as well and have only just come back online, so it's perfect timing. Excellent. Well, I'm glad you got it all sorted out. Um, so the theme I know for this first iteration of Photoval is Brink. Uh, what did you mean by Brink? So we're specifically looking at our world on the brink. I say specifically, it's quite a general open term. Um, so we're hoping that the audiences will see different ways in which our world is on the brink at the moment. It seems to have all come to a head at exactly the same time. Uh, our world is on the brink in terms of environmental destruction, in terms of um, pol political cohesion, um, mass migration, and we just want to bring all these issues together under one uh, theme, and we felt like this was quite a good title and quite a simple title for people. Uh, let's talk about some of the photographers that you have involved. Uh, it seems as if you've got things separated into those those three rough categories in terms of economic disparity or you know the brink of an economic collapse. We're going to get really happy here, by the way. I'm going <laughs> to say with a, a positive attitude. Um, and then we've got uh, environmental destruction, and then uh, cultural destruction as well. So yeah. 
Would you like to tell us about some of the artists involved with each of these areas? Yeah, of course. So um, we'll start off with Miles Little. Um, he is a curator from Time magazine. Yes. Um, and he's put together this show, 1% Privilege in a Time of Global Inequality. He has collected together 26 photographers from all over the world, and they each present um, economic inequality in very, very different ways, but they're all very beautifully presented. Um, so he's trying to use the language of the rich 1% to highlight all of the issues that go with this complete disparity in, in wealth. There's... Um, Eight billionaires at the moment um, own the same amount as three and a half billion people in the world, which I'm sure you guys heard about as an o in an Oxfam report a couple months ago. It's the that's the new the new figure. Then uh, I've I've heard variations on that for a long time at this point, yeah. and it's always just utterly shocking. Uh, some of the the images from Miles' uh, collection that you have up on the Photoval website, actually just photoval.com, by the way, folks, if you're interested in checking that out. Thank you. Uh, they, they are shocking, the uh, level of wealth that's contained in just a single person's, in some cases, living room. Uh, it just, it'll, it'll blow you away. Um, and then it seems you, you continue that for a variety of these artists. You've got uh, Ben Laksana, who studied or has put forth a, a gallery of inequality in healthcare in Indonesia, sort of looking at the almost opposite end of the spectrum in a lot of respects. Exactly. So Ben was actually one of our Open Call competition winners. We've so he's a, a local. He's a local. Wonderful. Um, originally hails from Indonesia, but has been in Wellington for quite a while, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, so it is completely opposite end of the scale to Miles um, in terms of the wealth that these the subjects actually experience on a day-to-day -day basis. Ben is really trying to highlight that people from outside of the cities within, Indo within Indonesia really have very little access to healthcare, and it can be sometimes, you know, life-death situations out in the jungle somewhere. It's not... Um, the access just isn't there at all, and you get occasionally some very charitable doctors who come in to... Um, you know, these very rural places and uh, able to help people, but the situations that people are in can sometimes be very desperate. Yeah, and if that sort of thing isn't utterly widespread, then, you know, it's wonderful in that one moment, but it might not be enough. Yeah. Uh, you actually, you mentioned the split between folks in rural areas and folks in uh, the cities, and one uh, person that really caught my eye, actually, as well, was uh, Sim Chi Yen, who was a photographer who studied the so-called rat tribe in Beijing, a uh, derogatory phrase for the folks who are essentially, essentially living in extreme poverty while still uh, maintaining professional careers in one of the richest countries on the planet. You know, these people that are essentially living out of uh, air raid shelters or in you know, small partition apartments and basements. Uh, and those images as well are, are very striking because you have this sense of extreme poverty within this extremely wealthy area. Yeah, it's really quite incredible. Sim Chien has done a very good job at making the images very personal. She's obviously in very tight underground basements with people that she hardly knows. And it's actually incredible how well she puts across um, how people want to make the most out of these tiny living spaces. And 
they don't see themselves as extremely impoverished, but actually when you see that the majority of their paycheck is going on their rent and they have very little left for food or any other expenses, it becomes very clear that that is actually what's going on, despite how much decoration is going on within their individual rooms. Yeah. Uh, it, it is always just fascinating seeing images from sort of both ends of the spectrum uh, especially, you know, as a as a young person trying to live in Wellington, you know, and, and Wellington has this reputation for being kind of tricky to make a living, tricky to find an affordable place to live. But then I, I feel like it's important for all people, I mean, not just folks in that scenario, but everyone to maintain visibility with both ends of the spectrum and really understand how many people there are out there and how many people live in completely different settings from what you're used to. Yeah, we're really trying to highlight um, areas of the world and situations that are going on that might otherwise be completely unseen by the majority of the Western population who actually are living in quite luxurious wealth compared to a lot right. of other people. From a relative standpoint, yeah, you, have, you still live in a fairly extreme privilege um, yeah. as much as people have a hard time recognizing that sometimes. Uh, speaking of things, actually, that are hard to recognize, you also have this entire section of Photovault that seems to be devoted to the destruction of the environment, whether it's casual or overt. Uh, some of these people have these very frightening but beautiful images that they've put together. There's uh, Anthony Kitchener with uh, exhibit plastic and water and uh, stri striking images of, of what plastic looks like and looks like in water, um, this aesthetic beauty that comes out. Yeah, again, Anthony was one of our open call winners. Um, the panel of judges absolutely loved his his style of work because it, on the surface of it, it looks quite fun and colourful and playful. Um, but when you're actually looking more in depth at it, you're realising that the fish and the plastic are very much combined. Sometimes he's made the fish out of plastic. Um, and he's just really trying to highlight how much pollution is going on within our oceans and specifically around New, New Zealand as well. There's actually a, a photograph that is circulating the internet right now, uh, just a funny coincidence, where someone has taken a plastic garbage bag and put it in a tank next to a series of jellyfish and shown that they look almost identical. And, you know, totally. this is a food for a, a sea turtle versus this is a plastic bag. And yeah. uh, I was struck by that, actually, when I was looking on the Photovol website. That uh, sounds very similar. Yeah. Yeah, very similar concept. Yeah, he has a, a, um, Anthony has a, a photograph of a, a plastic rubber glove, I think, in, yeah. in a fish tank and looks very at home, actually, which is a little <laughs> frightening. <laughs> Uh, there's a, a guy that, that struck me, Chris Corson, uh, kind of ties this into our next section as well. Um, he is looking at the general destruction of the New Zealand landscape by human intervention, both in terms of logging and industrial work, and also just by the, the presence of humans here, the presence of a lot of humans in what amounts to a very small country. Uh, and the reason I bring him up also is that he, in this age of digital photography, he only uses old analog and emulsion photographs. Yep, that's right. So, so he, he's a purist. He's a purist. He um, works entirely with film. He believes that this completely slows down your practice and means that you take in the landscape that you're trying to photograph or the people you're trying to photograph in a very, very different way compared to digital photography, which is very fast right. and 
doesn't take a lot of thought. So he spends a lot of time in the landscapes that he's in to try to better understand what destruction has actually gone on um, or the areas that people have simply forgotten about and they've been discarded. Yeah. I, I bring him up at the sort of transitional moment also because you have this final chunk where you're really looking at the idea of us as the thing on the brink, uh, whether it's the idea of humanity maybe moving itself out of a habitable, habitable environment or also this idea that we're advancing as a species, as a culture, and maybe leaving things behind or maybe accidentally or in some cases even intentionally destroying older cultures or smaller cultures uh, in order to make room for these new uh, groups, cultures, <laughs> organizations, mind fart there. Um, but, you know, the idea of having somebody that is still using analog uh, seemed like it sort of straddled the gap between those two different areas. Yeah. Uh, well, our photographer, um, Birgit Krippner, she still uses analog photography as well. Oh, cool. And her, um, her project that we're showcasing is about Tommy Itty, who is a Maori political activist. So she's had a very intimate uh, lens um, focusing on his life and his tribe's life mm -hmm. and what actually living in modern-day New Zealand for Maori tribe is like, especially for one that um, has managed to hold on to its language uh, right. very, very well. Um, out, out of all the Maori tribes, I believe it's one of the better ones. Um, in terms of continuing to hold on to their old yeah. traditions. I know a lot of them are, that is to say, the language is, uh, their language is still the dominant language within their, their uh, area. Yeah, they have a high percentage of people who, who speak the language very well, which right. is Retention unfortunate the past. that, yeah, it, it seems to have died out in other places. But it's really just bringing a focus onto um, the fact that colonization is still happening in a way, mm -hmm. um, the overtake of the cities in particular. An ongoing process. Yeah, it's always continuous and it always needs conversation and it always needs bringing to the forefront. It's something that I've found New Zealand does very well, but it just needs to carry on. Of course. I mean, that's always a very interesting thing for me at this point, uh, living in New Zealand and feeling on the one hand like New Zealand does do very well uh, with the retention of its native culture. Uh, especially given I'm coming from the United States where I almost feel sometimes like we op occupy the exact opposite end of the spectrum. But even so, even as I'm inspired by what I'm seeing, there is still so much left to be done and so much that just needs to be constantly paid attention to because it is, uh, it is a piece of this place and it needs to be fostered and uh, allowed to continue the same way well, any other culture needs to continue. Exactly. It's uh, the whole history of the country. Right. So. And Krippner has been, uh, Birgit Krippner has been active in this specific study for 50 years, I saw. She came here, no, no. that's not, okay, am I thinking of somebody else? <laughs> You're thinking about Anne's Westerer, I believe. Oh, well, you know, <laughs> that's embarrassing. How long's Krippner been doing it? Like three years I'm going to hear now. Yeah, she's oh, yeah she's been damn. seeing Tommy Etty, I think, for the last sort of two three years. Her career didn't she didn't come over here a long time ago and no. no so no. I'm just okay, cool. Well, this is the great thing about radio. No one can see how much I'm blushing at this moment. So Sorry. shame on you, Ben. Oh well. Um, well, let's just move right along then. Um, outside of uh, New Zealand cultures, you also have uh, Tamara Abdul Hadi, uh, who is looking at something that 
is in a lot of ways very similar, but a, a wider focus, the idea of the destructive influence of uh, the combined marginalization of cultures and also stereotyping of cultures, respectively. Yeah, um, it's actually, I think her project is a personal favorite of mine. Yeah. Her images are um, very soft, beautiful portraits of um, Arab men. Mm -hmm. So the lighting is very soft and they're in very feminine poses. Um, but the thought process behind it is actually quite striking and thought-provoking. So this idea, one of these men being part of an overtly masculine society, she's trying to subvert that and bring a different perspective to the viewers within those cultures. But then also for us as Western, Western societies, how do we usually see Arab men? Of course. It, it's usually in media and it's usually not very flattering, <laughs> to say the least. So... Um, her series, I think, is, yeah, as I say, very, very striking to see men of this origin to be portrayed in a very soft, beautiful way. And portraiture can just be so affecting as well. Yeah. So let's talk about your charitable uh, connections then. Um, you said that this is unique to Photoval. Uh, did you come into this with an idea of who you wanted to connect with? Or did the photographers have an idea of which charities they wanted to be involved in? Or... How did this come about? So I originally knew the photographers that wanted to be, that I wanted to get involved with the festival. I felt like their work really spoke the most to how our societies are functioning at the moment. Um, so from that point, I did some re research into New Zealand charities in particular to see what was happening in Wellington and throughout the country and then kind of looked at where those pairings might happen and went back to the photographers and they all came back and said they were happy to be involved in that way. So, yeah, I'm very grateful to both the charities and the photographers for wanting this link to happen and are happy to be involved with each other. Cool. So let's talk about that idea of having a direct link to a charitable foundation or actually to 10 charitable foundations uh, in the course of uh, gallery exhibitions. So... In your own words, why why is this an important idea? Why is this a viable idea for increasing charitable donations and involvement? So I think it's really easy for people to go into a film or an exhibition or a theatre show and be really touched by what they've seen, but then come out of it thinking, okay, what what can I do? And so much of the time those people go home and they slowly forget about what they've seen because they haven't been instantly engaged in a way that they can help. It's not that they don't want to, it's just that that information isn't readily available. So the idea for us is to not ram it down people's throats. Right. We're not going to be having lots of charity representatives there at the gallery opening. So no one from the charity is actually going to be present no in an official capacity. No one's going to be there sort of, you okay. know, distracting from the artwork itself. Right. We're just presenting the audiences with the photographic work and then when they've come to the end of it, if they feel impassioned enough, the information for the charity that's doing the work in a similar area will be right there for them to see both on the wall of the galleries and also we're going to be releasing a mobile platform, which means that there'll only be a couple of clicks away from either getting more knowledge about the charity, volunteering or donating money. I was going to say, so this is not just about taking uh, money 
from folks and giving to the charities. You're actually trying to get people involved with doing volunteer work as well. Yeah, exactly. Well, whatever they feel comfortable right. with, even if it's just getting their knowledge up so that they can talk to other people about it and spread the word of those charities around. Or even just for people like Action Station, they need signatures on pledges and um, things that they need to take to government and parliament. Right. They need that positive engagement there from the whole of society. So you're trying to generate energy and then actually use the energy instead of just letting it dissipate out into the night. Exactly. That, that makes sense. Uh, you're actually going to be holding a panel discussion on the final day of the festival uh, that covers this idea, um, asking whether images on their own can evoke social change. Uh, and I know that I have my opinion about that, but, you know, let's, let's talk about that for a moment. Uh, yep, so we've got a chair coming in from Massey University, who <coughs> is Caroline Macquarie. She's a lecturer of photography at the university, so she'll be chairing the entire discussion. And then sitting on the panel is going to be Ben, the photographer, who we spoke about earlier, one of our Open Call winners. Mm -hmm. um, Helen Mitchell, who is also a photography lecturer. And Pat Shepard, who is the amazing founder of the 1% Collective, which is based here in Wellington. So by having these different people on the panel to discuss different points of view of how much photography can actually influence change, I think will create a really interesting discussion and we're, we'll be encouraging audience members to ask those questions as well and try and get involved. Um, I think particular questions around that would involve um, how photographers use or avoid their own biases, for example. Uh, I think that's a re really big influence on whether that image can go ahead and, and make a positive difference or not. Right. And that is a very important idea, actually, at this point, uh, especially in modern times, this idea of avoiding a bias or avoiding sort of skewing the truth through a uh, photographic frame. Uh, I know that there's a huge attention being paid to that in uh, Western media of all kinds, um, the idea of whether you can manipulate people one way or another with a with a photograph. But... What, what is your opinion overall on the idea of using a photograph to galvanize social action? I think it's incredibly, um, incredibly important for photographers to do this, whether it's not directly making documentary photography, mm -hmm. but they could be more, more artistic with it as well. But I think it is incredibly important, especially at this crossroads that we seem to have met, in terms of which way our societies are going to go and which way our planets are going to go. People with voices need to utilize, utilize those voices for the people who don't have right. as big a voices. There is a wonderful opportunity for photography to be uh, just a, a passive observer, a passive window into truth. I mean, even as we're talking about this, I'm going over... Uh, various photographs that I've seen in study and then in news as an adult uh, that have stuck with me in a remarkable way. And so I, I, can, I can see how this would be a very important panel and also an emerging issue, this idea of media literacy and the understanding of how to judge a photograph for its veracity.
Yeah, I think it is incredibly important not only for the photographer to decide how much of an image they're going to be including, but also for the audience to be aware of how much of the image hasn't been included or mm-hmm. how much it's been changed and how that affects their mindset on perhaps the media article that's right. alongside it. Right. And in an age where we have such a ubiquitous media and such a, in some ways oversaturation, it is that much more important for every citizen to be aware of how to uh, vet a photograph or vet the media uh, and make a, make a conscious, educated decision on, exactly. right, on whether, whether it's real, whether it's there, whether it's true. Well, this, this all sounds wonderful. Photoval sounds like an incredible group of exhibitions. I know I'm going to be spending a lot of time running around Wellington trying to uh, find all of these. Uh, if you out there are interested in checking out Photoval, getting a sense of what you'd like to see, I recommend going to as many of them as you can. Uh, you can just head over to www.photoval.com, Photoval spelled P-H-O-T-I-V-A-L uh, dot com, not dot co dot N-Z. Uh, slight change there. Uh, is there anything else that you'd like to tell people before we sign off for the day? Um, not really, just that we're really excited to have it on and we're encouraging everybody to come along as much as they possibly can. So thank you very much. Wonderful. Thank you, Demi. This has been quite a lot of fun. Thank you.